how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the show. In this episode, I sit down with Eric Jorgensen. We talk about how he went from being a client of Scribe, the company founded by Tucker Max for new authors, to actually being the CEO of the company. It is a wild story. They got started on Twitter with his blog, Evergreen, and how he led to meeting Naval Ravikant, getting started in Silicon Valley, and doing so much more as he is now an author slash CEO of this company. We talk about a little bit of everything. One of the big things is borrowed authority and also how you can be a curator slash editor slash author and get your start as a author today. So much here. This is also going into my next book, The Self-Reliant Artist. You're getting, getting kind of an inside look at my research for this book, which will come out in February. You can also find the full one-hour interview on my YouTube channel. Join 8,000 other subscribers over at Brock Swinson on YouTube. All right, here is my conversation with Eric Jorgensen. I probably started, I started tweeting, like as soon as tweeting was a thing. My first real project was probably a blog called Evergreen, like 2014-ish. And I was just trying to learn. I just, uh, you know, I was working in this like crazy Silicon Valley startup and everybody felt smart and it was using all this jargon. And I was just trying to understand how it all worked. Um, so I'd send out an email to this little list of friends and be like, I'm trying to understand network effects. Like send me the best thing you've ever, best resource you've ever encountered on network effects. And I would get a bunch of stuff back and then I would consume it all in a week. And then over the weekend, I'd write like a quick summary of what I understood and link back to the original stuff. And it grew like crazy. And I was like, this is really cool, man. I'm learning and I'm sharing with people and I'm having fun. And this is like my kind of self-assessed MBA. Um, and that really gave me the sense that the confidence that if I did great work and I put it out on the internet, like good things would happen. Like the, the meritocracy of internet writing was real. Um, and that, I mean, that has kind of propelled me since then. Like there's a lot of good stuff out there. But I've always been a reader um, and I was like, you know, busy writing crappy novels as a kid on rainy days and stuff like that. So I don't think anybody in my family would have been surprised at uh, what, what happened here. I think a lot about like force multipliers, like that thing you were doing, you're learning it because you're teaching it. You're learning it better than most. You're not just skimming over parts. You're also kind of providing this this value there. And some of it's just like maybe borrowed authority. Um, anything from that that you kind of took through to the rest of your career? Like, how do you think about some of those things? Um, borrowed authority is an interesting term. I don't know. Like, I don't know, uh, how people think about it, but if there's a theme, I mean, like the theme from between Evergreen and my books is honestly like curation is creation you know there's this like false god of originality that i just like don't buy and i don't know if i don't buy it because i like stumbled into this awesome kind of niche as a like curator editor but i just i have no problem being very front and center about the fact that like 
this other person who's really smart said this thing and I learned from it and I'm happy to share it with you. And Evergreen, the Evergreen blog was that very explicitly. It was like, here's a paragraph from Charlie Munger. Here's what I learned from it. Or here's my connection to what Nassim Taleb said, or here's where that conflicts with this other thing that I thought I knew. And, you know, if that's borrowed authority or that's curation, um, I just find it so much easier to write when I'm reacting to something or complimenting something or rephrasing it or respecting it. And I have no problem being like extremely upfront with the reader about that. And the you know, respecting curation as a form of writing is maybe, uh, maybe what unlocked this opportunity of these books. Like these books are not written. Like I'm not sitting down with a blank page and generating content. All, every word of this book came from an existing resource from Naval or from Balaji that I'm just, I'm like a super editor. I'm like trying to find the best of everything they've ever said and stitch it together and mold it and turn it into something great. But I don't give myself the freedom to rewrite anything that they've done. I just try to build something great out of the pieces in front of me. And I think that's I don't know if it's a different skill than writing. I don't know if it's harder. I don't know if it's easier. Different people, it probably comes naturally to different, but I've, I certainly respect it as a craft. And I think it's made me a better writer. It's given me permission to do shitty first drafts and then edit my own work. Like, um, and I think to some people who maybe struggle with, with pushing themselves towards originality or with just getting that first draft done, like I, I say, don't shy away from, from using raw material that exists or reacting to something that's out there or borrowing heavily, you know, from, from something and making that your source material. It seems like in a very practical sense, like I started writing some stuff on medium. If I write about someone that they know and they don't know me, they're going to read the article, like at the very least. Yes. And you're kind of creating a form of trust around you. So when you do have something to say, they're more likely to listen to it. I think that's, yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, I think you see that in podcast guests and you see that in movies and you see that, you know, like you may not be familiar with a director, um, but you know the star or you may know the director, but you don't know the storyline. Like, um, I think there's something to that. Like the, you, you want like a lily pad of familiarity to some extent with to get someone on board with something new that you're creating. Um, I don't know. I, I find it more fun and like enjoyable and um it just feels more like playing with legos than you know doing something else and like that's just the analogy that, that comes up for me I, and i as i think about creating original work i still do the same thing right like i'm gonna i'm gonna borrow this story structure i'm gonna borrow this um this character inspiration or this type or this you know the heist format or something like that and when you see those pieces you see how few things you know there's how many things are just combinations of the underlying components did you meet did you meet naval through um you know your twitter and some of those things or is it more about you showed up wanting to do this plan and and your leverage was hard work and effort putting into collecting it well, how did that kind of all come together there was there was never really this like hey i've got an idea to pitch you moment you know like this is such a happy accident like i just I, uh, I was listening to Naval's interview on The Knowledge Project. It was an incredible podcast. I'd listened to it maybe three times over the course of two weeks. And I just was like, this is an incredible podcast. There is timeless wisdom in here. 
this has unlocked so much for me. And I think it's such a shame that this wisdom is buried in this unsearchable, like unarchived, like potentially very ephemeral format that so many people won't get access to. And as somebody who's like spent my career, one, curating things, but back from the Evergreen blog, and two, you know, some of, I, I love Charlie Munger. I some of my favorite books are compilations of Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett's ideas that came from the shareholder letters or that came from their meetings. And so I was familiar with the concept of a book of compilations and quotes. And I was just like, well, maybe, maybe there's like something here. And I tweeted this random idea. It was a bad pun title. I was like, would you write, read the book of knowledge? Like a quick compilation of just like all these different, um, great quotes from all Naval's different work. And I'd been following him for 10 years. I learned a ton from him, respected him for a long time and tweeted this, went to bed, didn't think about it, woke up and found that Naval had retweeted it. And 5,000 people were like, Oh my God, yes, please do this. And Naval had replied and said like, I'm happy to provide whatever you need, like go for it. And I kind of went from like, Oh shit, this is, I thought this would be a three month like side project to, Oh my God, I just like got permission to write the next Port Charlie's Almanac. Like I better really deeply respect this. And so I, <laughs> it ended up being like a three year project to like get everything categorized and meticulous and thread it together and get peer readers to review it. And just like the scope creep when I know that, you know, when I knew that Naval was paying attention to it and when I knew I wanted to produce something that was worthy of the rest of his work and his legacy and his um what he puts out into the world i wanted it to be something that he would be proud to be associated with and it just raised my bar so much um you know one of one of my new phrases as a result of that experience is everyone's a perfectionist when they get enough skin in the game and like the the re reflex to like remove yourself from skin in the game high skin in the game situations um is, is like that fear that you won't make it good enough. And I didn't have an option, you know, Naval was paying attention to this project from the second I tweeted about it. And that really changed my relationship to it. And I was like, I will publish this. It, it will get published. I do not know when I will give myself as much time as I need. I have a fixed bar on quality. It will be exceptional. I don't care if it takes one year, three years or five years, but like it will be, it will be perfect by the time it goes out. Um, and I think, you know, in a world where books and movies and companies and everything have this power law where like only the top 1% drive the majority of the, the outcomes, like that putting yourself in situations where you are going to become that much of a perfectionist, like matters a lot. There's a lot to be said for generating volume, but when you've got something that really, really matters and you just agonize over the craft of it, I think um, I think that's where people really surprise themselves. Do you think, I mean, in this case, it's a little different. Like you sort of need a green light permission-wise, some of those things. But as far as like writing a book with effort, like Alex Ramosi has a thing about put in 20x the effort, you may receive 1,000x the results. Yeah. Do you think you can do that intrinsically or do you need, you know, feedback from someone else, uh, accountability? How do you think about some of those things? Depends who you are, I think. Um, know thyself, you know, like I think some people are certainly like capable of like high degrees of self masochism and just like can get themselves there, um, by just by dint of their personality or upbringing or who they are and how they work. Um, some people benefit from a new context. Um, and I think that was me, right? Like 
I'm, I'm very much a like 80, 20, the input output kind of guy. Like I'd rather move fast, get a good return on my time and keep going. And this project was one of the first times in my life, I think, or certainly one of the most extreme examples in my life where I was like, I, I will become a perfectionist for this project in this moment, in this context. And I'm blown away by the results and it's changed how I approach you know, a lot of my other, a lot of my other projects now. Um, you know, it makes it a little easier to triage of like, I mean, I could half-ass that, but if I half-ass it, it's not going to be what I want it to be anyway. So I may as well just like not ass it at all and like whole-ass this other thing instead. I saw some things like you don't have time to do it right when you have time to do it again. And I try to think about that with like smaller things. What changed yeah. in that three-year process for you? So I use Ryan Holiday's Commonplace system. I use actual note cards, stuff like that. What changed mm -hmm. about your research in that three years of working on this book? Man, I don't know. My tools are not sophisticated. I just use Google Docs a lot. I use a lot of Google Docs and uh, some Otter for like some transcription stuff. Um, it definitely, ha having been all the way through the book publishing process the first time, helped a lot to to go through it the second. Just knowing what steps were coming for me, like the first time I was writing a book. You know, I would do, I did multiple passes where I agonized on grammar and specific word choice and technical correctness. And then when I, the second time around, I knowing that I was going to go through a copy editing phase and a proofreading phase as part of the normal, you know, my publishing process through Scribe, I was like, I'm not going to sweat the commas at all. I'm just going to do something that feels great. And I was, I sweat the word choices and I sweat how it feels to the reader sentence by sentence. But I gave zero concerns to formatting, zero concerns to grammatical correctness, because it's not my strength and it's not my passion. And I just was a lot more efficient with where I put my energy and my attention the second time around. Um, I was able to do faster revisions, um, more confident revisions. Um, I knew kind of what it felt like to do the work at the right level. I didn't agonize over like, oh, should, am I allowed to change the sentence structure from like, you know, ABA to AAB? Um, and I was like, it worked the first time. It was fine. Nobody's mad. Nobody's paying that close attention. Like it reads better. I'm just going to do it. I know I can do that now. Um, and I think, you know, that comes for everybody probably at different times, but it's certainly, yeah, less worry, more confidence is probably the biggest thing, more so than any particular process. Um, big, big process change. I was a little more organized because I knew a little bit more about, I, I had to think a little bit less about like the formatting and um, the tools I was going to use and what was going to come next. But so I'm, I'm teaching a hand, like a half a dozen writers, how to write their first books right now. We were talking about this book called the now habit. And there's a thing in there, uh, Dr. Neil Fiore, there's an idea in there that you're not lazy, but that you're probably worrying about criticism bad feedback or perfectionism. Now you've already admitted you're trying to make the book perfect. So in those moments, how did you get past some of that? I remembered that there are future moments. Um, and I just became willing to willing to punt decisions. Um, you know, I think there's, I think there's a tension. Yeah. Between, between that. I knew, I think it's, it's helpful to have those, the tension of the truth of like, I will make this as perfect as I can, but someday it must get published. And I knew, I knew that, uh, I couldn't over perfectionist it. Um, but I also knew that I was running. I felt myself slowing down at the rate of changes, you know, the, the previously, 
well, there's a few, there's a few indications I had that I was like getting the asymptote of like good enough, like getting close to perfect is like, I would put it down for two weeks. I'd come back and pick it up and it'd be better than I remembered. Like that was a big shift. And that was, I was like, Oh, I went from like 90% done to like 99 plus percent done when I started to feel like, damn, who wrote this? Like, this is good. <laughs> did I do this? Like three years of my past self did. It's like, now I've got some more confidence to be like, okay, I'm putting this out there. Um, the other is just, yeah, you just sparser and sparser marks on the page as you go through. Um, I really, I benefit a lot from going back and forth between mediums. So when I felt stuck on the computer, I'd print it out, I'd go through with a red pen. Um, and that would give me some progress again. And just, you know, um, I just kept kind of going back and forth between different types of work. And eventually I'm like, man, I, you know, slowing down. Like I, I'm running out of ideas out. And then sometimes you turn to peer readers um, or you just you know kind of go to the publisher and be like, I, th I think this is ready. Is this ready? Like, and they'll, they've, you know, they're experts at this and they'll, they'll read it and they'll say like, yes, it's ready. Congratulations. Or yes, it's ready, but you need a line edit. And especially that first book, a line editor was the best money I've ever spent. Oh my God, man. I, like the stuff I was stuck on that I just never, ever would have seen because I've been reading it for too long. Um, and the help that that person was able to provide. And, and it was really helpful to me. Is like, they were very clear. It's like, you are in control of all these edits. You don't have to make any edits you don't want, but we're going to suggest everything that we can think of to make this book better. And probably nine out of 10 I took, but the one, the one out of 10, like felt important to me to keep for some character reason or, um, or voice reason or something like that. And, um, I don't know, everybody finds their own balance with it, but those are some of the indicators that I felt when I was trying to kind of work through those tensions. Are there things changing? So one, I wrote a book like two years ago and I get my information from everywhere. Some I get from other books, some I get from quotes, podcasts, I mean, Instagram, whatever, wherever it comes from. Do you feel yeah. like some of the MLA stuff is kind of changing in the technicality of the way things are written when you're, because if it's, if it's a book, I'm probably going to say the name of the book, but if it's not, I might be a little more open with, is, did they write it? Did they say it? Whatever it is. You know? I'm just uh, like, I cede all of those decisions to somebody who is very careful about those details, but they, they get confused. They're like, this came from a podcast, but it was shared on YouTube. And that's the only link I can find. I don't know how to cite a YouTube video. I'm like, me neither, but like, just do your best. Like I'm, I'm okay. I don't stress about that. Uh, the MLA formatting very much. Like to, to me, and I come into this from a readers, like I, you know, I didn't come from a program. I didn't study English. I, I loved books and I loved reading, but I'm not like a, I don't know. I'm not like a librarian type. Uh, if that, like, if, if that is an archetype, like that's not me. I just, I care so deeply that the reader has a good experience. I don't give a, a shit about the literal technical correctness of the grammar of the citations of the, I, I just want the reader to have a great experience. So one thing I noticed, so using uh, to elaborate for listeners, like the Ryan Holiday method is a series of note cards. Sometimes I'm just writing notes and I'm just trying to connect quote A to quote B. But yeah. for me, and I imagine especially in this case, doing that kind of raises your level of writing. Is that kind of, was that your experience about just the pieces that weren't, you know, Naval quotes? So literally everything in that book is a Naval quote. Every word. Um to, I, I don't use note cards, um, and I'd actually be curious to hear your 
I want to ask you a question about the handwriting piece in a second. Um, but to me, to me, it's like a big, it's a big jigsaw puzzle. And I just try to put the pieces together in a bunch of different ways. And it helps to have big blocks of time that you can allocate to that. Cause you kind of have to load, you know, to your point on quote, a quote, B quote, C quote, D you have to like load that into your head. And then sometimes your subconscious is just like chewing on it. And, you know, you get a shower thought and you're like, Oh, I got actually a goes with D and D leads into B. And like, maybe I should try that. Um, and it t- just takes having all that in your head to make those connections. And I, I do think, you know, there's a lot of quote compilation books out there and it's very rare that any of them resonate with people the way this book has. And I think that's a testament to like creating that thread of ideas and creating a structure around them and making something really useful for idea for readers as a reference and as an experience that feels like a conversation where each idea sort of either builds on or answers or expands the idea before it um, really pulls people through. And I, there were people who, you know, this, this book just launched this week as we're recording this and the people who started tweeting threads about the book the day that it launched and some of the podcasts I did, the podcaster was like, I literally read this book in one night. And I think that's, that's a testament to the thread of ideas that, and the conversational tone that like keeps pulling you through and that just sanding and polishing all those edges and the seams between ideas so that they flow really, really matters from a reader's perspective. Do you think that made it different? So that is really interesting. So, I'm, and I'm, I'm writing books and when I, and I'm also working on a documentary and it's very different with reading things the way they're like, like if Naval sat down to write this book, it may be different than this book because you write different than you speak. What was your yeah. kind of take on that? You said you had to do a few tweaks, but what was the big picture take on that? It's very interesting when you look at a transcript at first, like tra- raw transcripts read like shit. And you look at it and you're like, there's no way. Like, this is this is the worst kind of writing. This is impossible. But if you if you take uh, some like pretty aggressive editing hammer, like if you take some liberties to structure that into something nice, what you end up with is something that reads like the best form of writing to me, which is conversational. Um, it's very easy for whatever reason, when writers sit down to write, to over-intellectualize, to extrapolate, to slow down, to explain things that don't need to be explained, to just generally fuck up the, the flow of a thought. And as a reader, to interact with a book is can be really intimate and really powerful if it feels conversational, if it feels personal. And I think that that's way more achievable when you start with something that was literally a conversation. Like a lot of what became the Almanac and Naval were his clubhouse uh, recordings or his podcast recordings, where it is a dialogue, it's an interview, it's a one-to-one conversation. And when that tone, the casualness of it, the clarity of it, um, the cadence of it makes its way into a book, as you're reading it, you're hearing it, you feel like you're having this conversation it is. I think it's much more engaging, honestly, than um, than something that's like written like a writer. Um, and I, you know, the best the best books to me and the best writers have these like strong voices and tones that stick in your head. Um, you know, Chuck Palahniuk, like Tucker Max, that stick out. Like you know, you're reading a book by one of those people. Um, 
and it feels like a conversation and pulls you into it. And I hope that these kind of do the same and just engage something primal in you. That's like, feels like you're there sitting across the table from this person. You're your best self. They're their best self. They're presenting all their most important ideas to you as succinctly and clearly as they can. Like, I want, I want to simulate a one-on-one -on -one dinner with your heroes, uh, with some of the wisest people alive. Like that's what I want these books to feel like. And when you come from a conversational source material, I think that's much easier to achieve. Does it feel like this hit or these hit at the perfect moment? Cause we're, you mentioned Otter AI, but that's really just a transcript, but we're right on the peak of every, everything's crazy. I mean, does it, does it feel like <laughs> we're going to get to a point where a podcast host could click a button and they, turn out something similar like this or is there a human touch that you think like what are your thoughts on that now in this moment i still feel like there's a human touch i, I mess around with some of the chat gpt stuff like in starting to do this and for, for the process that i use it's not particularly helpful it's just um it's great at that it maybe can do that first 90 percent, but it kind of changes stuff it's not supposed to change and it's just like i'm a, a very techno progressive utopian kind of guy like that's the theme of this most recent book like i love using the best tools available for stuff it just um and it might help with some of the info management but it's just not um it does not do curation well yet at least the, in the modes that i've used it and i don't have a black belt in gpt prompts or anything so like it's very possible someone smarter than me could do it well um I do think, and the tools that I'm seeing on like the, on the more writing and publishing and like as a brainstorming partner and like the AI voice cloning stuff, like there's some really cool stuff coming. Um, gotten some demos of things that are like, you know, you upload an hour of narrated voice and you can create a voice clone that can do anything. Um, it can regenerate. It can be, it can be giving creative direction. It can be, translated into other languages. You would have my voice speaking Chinese, a language that I don't even begin to speak, um, like dr driven through AI. There's incredible, some incredible stuff coming. Um, I think in general, that value will accrue, like the power law will continue, that value will accrue to the best writers who have that human touch, who lean into using the tools to improve their output or increase their output. Um, and it might, you know, put out of business some of the like, I'm going to say like cognitive day laborers who do not put soul into their writing, but are just hired to execute a task at a low budget for a thing that they don't care about. Any, I don't know, like a Hallmark movie is like probably an unfair example that I'm going to use, but like um, some of that stuff may get replaced um, or, or largely supplemented by new incoming AI stuff. And, I think for the species, that's a great thing for some people that that might mean temporary unemployment for that's very annoying. But um, I, I always kind of err on the side of the greater good and encourage people to lean into using new tools or self-educating in a new direction or um, figuring that out. Like you, you are more than your current form of employment. So like, please, uh, please, please allow technology to evolve and don't, uh, you know, don't feel the need to pick up a picket sign and go on strike because someone invented something new and cool that's going to help humanity. Going back to those three years, what changed for you in terms of personal growth? Like just spending three years kind of in the mind of Naval and, and translating these things. Like I imagine a lot of systems came out of that, but what are some, some oh other God, benefits? Yeah. I, when I wrote this, the book on Naval, I had no idea anybody was going to give a shit. Like I would have been very happy if I just spent three years marinating in his 
wisdom and building this mental model of him that I could feel like I could really have a conversation with and install his ideas into my head. Like if that's, if the only reward for this was understanding him and his ideas, like it would have been plenty. Um, I, I now I use the analogy, like I feel like I built a Hogwarts portrait of him in my head. So like I can go have a conversation with that portrait and like get some advice. And I understand, I think, um, you know, it's, it's certainly not him, but I understand a lot of what, how he analyzes things and how he thinks and what he thinks is important and how he sees the world. And, um, that's given me both some happiness and some peace and some new habits. Um, but also I think maybe, you know, a more effective CEO, a more effective investor, a better writer, better podcaster, um, all of those things. I mean, the, it, it's hard at this point to separate like what is me and what is <laughs> the growth that came from spending that much time because I was like adopted those ideas so aggressively. Um, there's been an incredible number of good outcomes in my life just from having the book out there, right? Like, you know, I started a venture fund, started a podcast, wrote a second and third book and became CEO of this publishing company that published that first book. All of that, you could pretty much trace directly back to the outcome of that book. And that's before we talk about like the actual financial impact of the book on my life, which was life-changing. Um, so it's been, I, I owe you know, almost all of the positive things in my life in this moment, I think to the, the work that went into the book and the second and third order effects of that book being out in the world um, has been an absolutely transformative thing for me. You know, the, the creation process and the outcomes um, in the world and the people that I've met because of it, the conversations I've been able to have is absolutely incredible. You know, this book as a, um, as a bat signal to like my kind of people has been like incredibly effective. And that's, it's, it's very difficult to, um, to appreciate the full force of that until you feel it. It's incredible. Because you, I don't know, it's, it's hard to think of how to use an algorithm to find really deep thinkers. Like it's not like a, a category of, of something like that. Yeah. And well, that goes back to your point on like borrowed, uh, borrowed credibility. Was it yeah, like borrowed authority? Like, yeah, yeah, some, yeah. Borrowed authority. Yeah. I mean, some of the, my best friends in life I met as a result of being like in my twenties and loving Charlie Munger. Like you go to a Charlie Munger, like daily journal meeting or a Berkshire meeting. And there's like a lot of old guys in pleated khakis and like three 20 year olds and the 20 year olds go introduce each other. And like, if you are that kind of person with the level of like chutzpah to go to that meeting, because you're that passionate about that individual person who you respect so much. Um, it's been, it's an incredible, filter for your kind of people. And Naval has been the same way. You know, I'm, I don't disagree with Naval about much. Um, and I'm very proud to have sort of written that book and almost everybody who resonate, who it resonates with, I'm excited to meet because if they love that book that much, then they're probably my kind of people. Back in the day, they really only had the shareholders note. There wasn't a ton of information. They had to suck everything yeah. out of this kind of note. What has changed for you in terms of like the amount of information? It seems like you've kind of become an expert in taking a ton of stuff and compiling it down to the nuts and bolts. Any, I know it's kind of hard to even ask the question, but like, where do you begin with some of those things? How do you start to break them up categorically? Yeah, I think um, the most helpful thing to know is that it's, it's emergent. Um, and so I like, so the, third well i'll use the biology example like you're when you start 
you get a new person and you just build a giant ass database of all the stuff they've ever done. Um, it's, it's a little, you just start consuming it all and you start selecting pieces that really resonate with you. And over, t you know, at first there's not, there's only one bucket. There's just like shit I like. And then over time you're like, oh man, there's been a lot of stuff about the media. I'm going to make a media bucket. And then like, you've got a few more, a few more. And you're like, oh, there's a lot of stuff about, this is all his startup advice. Okay. Startup advice. And then startup advice turns into, you know, you split off hiring and managing and ideating and, you know, growing a company or, um, how do you validate an idea? And like the, the buckets just sort of emerge and merge back together. And it's just this organic process of like trying to, trying to organize and separate with increasing fidelity and then ordering them both like kind of the macro buckets and each individual idea within them and the sub buckets, which turn into chapters of just like, how do you, how do you set these ideas up so that they build on each other? So that you can take someone who's new through this logical progression of like, Oh, that's a good idea. Well, I wonder, Oh, that answers it. Oh, that's next. Oh, that's next. Um, and something, another answer to your question about what changed between kind of book one and two is like, you get way better at figuring out what to, what to preemptively cut, like what to ignore before you even pull it in. Um, you're like, you're, you get a little more confident in your, your taste, I guess. Um, that first book. So in working on the Naval book, my first version of that book, the first manuscript was like 600 pages. It was enormous. It was 150,000 words or something. It was truly enormous. Um, and in my head, I was making Portrait Almanac, which is a behemoth of a book. It's a coffee table book. It's 400 pages. And so I sent that first version to peer readers and I was like, what do you think, guys? And, and then I got on calls with them and they were like, to a person, every single one of them was like, there was some great stuff in there, but I gotta be honest, I did not read the whole thing. I didn't make it more than halfway. I didn't like, I, I gave up. I did. I ignored that section entirely. Um, and I was like, okay, okay, okay. Good feedback. Good feedback. Good feedback. I wanted to tighten it up a lot. And that process taught me that going into that second book, like I just preemptively cut. So I knew so many roads to not even go down. Cause I was like, well, that's going to be the whole section that I end up cutting in six months after I put, 200 hours into it so i'm not even going to start with you um and that that you know i don't have an answer for that other than reps and sometimes you have to go down those paths to know they're not they're not what you want to include but a little bit of increasing sort of um confidence in your taste and experience exploring that maze finding dead ends and and understanding what it feels like to kind of know that you're walking that main path and having a clear sense of what the final product is like helps very much you know some people set out to write a hundred fifty thousand word book and some people set out to write a fifty thousand word book and i think the fact that i ended up I bounced off you know 100 150 and then cut down to 50 made it a really really rich dense nutritious thing that you know when people say like i have a highlight on every page i dog-eared every like, there's i just I can't put the pencil down. Like I love to hear that. And that to me feels like I delivered on a really good use of time for the reader, like back to the reader experience. Um, they're like, you know, I, I want to reread it because I feel like I didn't glean everything from it the first time, or it was such a good use of time. I want to remind myself of it in six months or in a year. And those are, those are good things. And I think it comes from, you know, uh, 
making a big soup and then like boiling it down and making it more and more concentrated. Actually, when I, when I read it, I read straight through it and I usually make a ton of notes and I didn't because I knew I was just going to have to refer back to it like <laughs> over and over. I was like, there's no, uh, I'm not going to highlight the whole book, you know. <laughs> um, I'll take that. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you think about, so I've interviewed like um, Jonathan Eager at the giant Muhammad Ali biography. Mm. Um, so there's a difference in like a, bi a biography and a memoir. And that's why I'm trying to help people understand that, like focus on some kind of theme or something like that. When you're going from 150 to 50 with this book, are you thinking of like, is it just the big categories? Is it like how to solve problems for people? Like in marketing, I tell people health, wealth, relationships. Like, are you, did you kind of lean into this, a guide to wealth and happiness? Like, did that help you also the bigger umbrella, I guess? Yeah. The, you know, in, in having all those conversations with kind of those peer readers or beta readers or whatever you want to call them. Um, I mean, it, it is no surprise that the things that were universally appreciated were about wealth and about happiness. Like go figure, right? Everybody wants to be rich and happy. Um, there were, I mean, some of the other sections were ideas like investing. It's like, if you are into investing, fascinating. If you're not into investing, skip the whole section. They're not going to like, people aren't going to read it. It's a very skippable thing. Um, education. I found that one deeply fascinating. I wish everyone cared about it. Not everybody cares about it. That's okay. Um, and so it, some of them were very easy decisions on like, you know, no sweat to cut out, you know, in 2019 to cut out a blockchain section from a book on wealth and happiness. Like Naval has brilliant ideas. Certainly not everybody's going to care about it right now. That's okay. Um, and I actually agonized over it for a while until I had the incredibly obvious insight that I can just put all that stuff on the website. I can still give it away. People are still going to read it. It'll still be great for SEO or the readers who want to go dive deeper. It doesn't have to get bundled and printed and shipped with the wealth and happiness sections, which are pretty close to universally appealing. I genuinely believe anybody on earth who speaks English can pick this book up and get something useful to apply to their lives immediately from it. And diluting that with stuff that I think is cool and important, like blockchain and education, doesn't serve the reader. It doesn't really help them. And I'm shoving it down their throat. Um, you know, I, this is, this is the closest thing that I have. And I tell every author that I work with at scribe about this is, is the stupidest, simplest, so obvious. You can't believe it thing that I think is the secret. The closest thing I have to the secret of this book success. People do not recommend books that they don't finish. They're just too, chicken shit to be like, you read this book, you're going to love it. And then somebody else reads it and comes back. to like, what did you think of that last chapter? And like, Oh, I didn't finish it. Like we are just, we have we, your gut tightens up when you think about it and it's just embarrassing. And you just, we just don't do it. You won't, it doesn't happen. And I don't know. I don't know how to like sell books to millions of people. Um, I only know how to write a book that people sell to each other and people only sell books to each other when they finish them and when they love them and when they wish they were longer and it's painful to cut from a hundred thousand words down to 50,000 words and to feel like you're, you know, leaving beautiful stuff, you know, hidden on a website or on the cutting room floor. But if people don't finish your book, they're not going to recommend it to their friends. If they don't recommend it to their friends, that beautiful wave of growth and 
stuff is never going to come for that book. There are exceptions that prove the rule. I think like the polar opposite version is like Robert Caro, Shantaram, like infinite jest thousand page books that when people finish it, they won't shut up about it because they're so proud of themselves for finishing this behemoth of a book. Right. Um, so the other extreme I think also works in a very different way, but there's a, there's a tough middle ground where like, you know, you wrote 120,000 more book. That's not, that rich and dense it doesn't have to be 120,000 words and not that many people do finish it and if they don't finish it they don't recommend it and it just kind of peters out um so that's something i, I coach authors on often is like please like make a book that is finishable like you so much more badly want someone to wish a book was longer than wish it was shorter because if they wish it was shorter you know um your reach, your impact is just going to be so much less. Get your core message through, get it done, leave them with some energy to go look at your website, go look you up, go listen to a podcast about you, like look forward to your second book, right? Like leave them one more. Yeah, it's kind of, and that's, uh, I think Jerry Seinfeld said, if you say it's too long or too short, what you mean is it's good or bad. Like there's an underlying yeah. impression of that. So, well, okay. So yeah. let's, let's, um, at what point, so you kind of got the green light on Twitter you're doing three years of research. Where in that did you did you go to scribe? When did you and why did you go to scribe? Yeah, I, this is another. Uh, I mean, a testament to building in public um, to some extent, which I think my my whole career is in some form. Um, I remember tweeting, you know, I think I've got a manuscript, uh, my first draft of a manuscript done for the Almanac and the Ball, and I was wrong. Like I did not. <laughs> There's a lot of work left to do on that manuscript, but I tweeted it. Um, and it felt good to tweet and I was proud of myself for reaching that milestone and I got some, some congrats and some people who were excited and it's another way to keep me motivated. But one of the people who reached out to me was Tucker Max, who, um, I've been reading since I was a teenager. Um, I always thought he had an incredible voice and he really did some pioneering stuff in how he published his books. And he was a very early successful, um, sort of blog to author transition. And, uh, he'd been reading my evergreen blog that I talked about earlier and so we've been kind of brainstorming about, uh, you know, random business topics. We had never met him. We'd just been DMing and he reached out and said, Hey, you know, what's the deal with this? Like, let me know if I can help you, um, publish it or navigate publishing or whatever. And so we got on the phone for, for 20, 30 minutes and, um, he just kind of walked me through the options. He's like, you know, here, here's what you got. Like traditional publishing is going to be tough because you, these are just like, it's a weird format and like you, we don't know if the audience is going to be there, but like you definitely have fans of Naval and Naval is giving you this permission and that's awesome. Um, and he's like, why don't you, like, if you bring it in describe, let's, let's see what we can do. This is like what we do. We publish manuscripts for authors at a very incredibly high, high quality, like world-class level that will look and feel and taste like a traditionally published book. Readers won't, have any sense that there's a difference but you will uh, have all the creative control and you will have all the financial upside of the book um and one of the conditions from from naval for me working on this project uh which turned out to be a, a huge blessing and i was happy to do it regardless was make the digital versions available for free um all the digital versions distributed globally no strings attached on the website um and i've done that for the anthology of biology also um and we we're like, I was like, look, I, you know, a traditional publisher is not going to touch that concept with a 10 foot pole, right? Like, that, like, no way. Um, I think it's actually helped us sell a ton more books. And I feel like it's done a lot for humanity. And I love seeing photos of people who've like 
you know, reading this thing in a remote village in India, or they just like printed it out themselves. Um, like that actually makes me happy because the ideas are reaching more places. But anyway, Tucker took me through the, he's like, you know, we'll, we will ingest this manuscript. We will give it a copy edit, we'll give it a proofread. Um, we'll give you some options for cover design and page layout, and we'll help you get it distributed all the places that you need. Um, and we'll, we'll see what it can do. Um, I, I don't know how, like in retrospect, I do not know how I would have done it otherwise. And I, if I had tried to DIY this whole thing, it would have been like me trying to build my own house. Um, and to know me is to know that I am not handy and could not build my own house. And if I did, it would be janky and falling apart. And so the, the the whole, like I could, you could DIY self publish like a, a digital stuff, no problem. And I know there's authors who do that. If you want the physical book, um, I was very, very grateful to have professional help and counseling and people who could bring me through that and help me navigate Amazon. And I now have friends who have published digital only stuff. And unless you have your audience trained for that, I think it's a huge, it's a huge miss to publish a digital only. There's a, there's a big, like, um, it's not a, I don't know if it's tradition or prestige or what, but like people gift physical books. They take photos of physical books. They, hand each other physical books. They put them on shelves. They remember them. They leave them out on their bedside table. Like I, you know, if, if you are an author who takes your book seriously and you want it to be sort of an evergreen thing, um, my advice is, is like, and this doesn't apply to every author or every strategy, but like, please very heavily consider doing a physically, a physical version. Um, it's not that hard in this day and age. And it's very, it's easy to, assume that you would have, Oh, just like, well, half the sales are ebooks. So I'll still get all the sales ebook that I would get if I just didn't have a digital ver a print version. No, I think they are, um, I think they're synergistic and they, they multiply each other. And I think you'll have more sales of your book overall. If you have all the versions available back to the word of mouth, people selling to each other kind of thing. Like you want that maximum surface area to kind of continue, let that wave continue. So I did a, a training for these um, new authors I'm working with to kind of just explain traditional, what it's like. I've, I've worked as a ghostwriter on about 12 books. I gave away my first book for free as well. If you go listen to my broxwinson.com audio book and the, real, and, the, and the digital book are free on there for anyone who wants them. And that got me like thousands of readers where I had none before, you know. Yeah. Um, but I like to think of it. I came up with this term kind of just for this presentation called crescendo publishing. I like the idea that I want to do a mini launch and hit some numbers, but I'm more concerned with, can I sell more books next month than this month and yes. word of mouth and everything else? Um, tell me a little bit more about the thinking of doing the free giveaway. I think Tim Ferriss did something like maybe with the chef book where he like leaked it on torrent sites on purpose and stuff like that. Oh. So what are, <laughs> what are some of the thoughts behind that? I don't know. Um, I don't know the Tim, that Tim Ferriss story. Um, I'd be a little surprised by that, but, um, but maybe that's true. Um, no, I, I think it was, I think it was Naval's way of ensuring that it was like a project for the greater good, not accidentally issuing me some like insane, you know, copyright monopoly over, <laughs> over his greatest ideas. Right. Like, um, I, I think um, it, it, 
is also turned out to be an incredible like logistical benefit. Um, it, it really, you know, talking about that surface area, like it really increases that surface area. People willing to talk about it. It increases the number of people who try it and like read a few chapters or even read the whole thing and then say, Oh my God, I loved it. I need the physical version. Like I, I, I want to look at it all the time. I want to have a physical version. Um, that created a lot, but I also, you know, th there's ideas in the book, um, that, you know, Naval talks about, you know, if, if they read it, if they wrote it to make money, don't read it. Um, heuristic for selection of books. And, uh, similarly, like, you know, anybody who's trying to sell you a get rich quick scheme is like, just trying to get rich off of you. Like those don't exist, avoid them. Um, and so I think that policy was also in part just a really intentional way to avoid that kind of trap of, um, you know, having conflicting messages and like, these are foundational principles for a bunch of people to, to live on. So like have a positive sub mindset to seek leverage, to create wealth, to take accountability for your actions and your work, to try to build equity, um, in, in a business or buy it, um, where you can like, these are universal principles that can really help, help people help lift them up no matter where they are. And I don't feel great about like gatekeeping that for, you know, $3 us that might be a lot of money to people, you know, when you travel abroad or, um, or whatever, or just the accessibility, like as soon as you publish a book, you immediate like DMS and reply floods of like, why can't I get it in X country in X language in X format? Um, and it was, it was genuinely like, I appreciate it as an author who cares about the reader's experience to just be like, it's on the website. Like if you want to read it, just go read it. Like I, I I'm so, I'm sorry. I can't like have it perfectly distributed globally, like worldwide, especially on day one. But I, I want you to have this information. Genuinely. I do like, please go read it. Um, and I, f I just feel good about that. Like I, I earn plenty of money. Um, like it has not, I don't think changed my livelihood for the worse, maybe for, as for the better, but I feel great about the work that I do and the legacy that I can leave and sharing these ideas. And I wouldn't be like dedicating thousands of hours of my life to building these books if I didn't think they were good for humanity and good for the people reading it. Um, and so it feels good to be able to share that maximally. And even if I did, even if I knew I was giving up 5x financial upside for being able to have that impact and reach 10 times more people i would do it we're coming up close on time i got maybe two or three more we'll kind of see where we're at um bring it on was there any point in the beginning of the three years when you didn't know it was going to be three years that you felt a rush to hold like strike when the iron is hot i've got this green light i can pump this thing out in six months how did you avoid that Oh my God, dude. Yeah. Especially when, um, I mean, Naval was like really hot around this time and like increasing popularity aggressively. And I still remember, I remember my blood boiling when I, people, cause it was, this is a public project, right? Like I was clear that I was working on it and people were like, where is it? Like, where is it? It's been a year. And I was like, do you know how hard I'm working on this and like what my quality bar is and how, like, one, do you know how far I am from being done? So if you're mad about a year, like just buckle up because it's going to be a minute. Um, and like it didn't, it didn't upset me that people were eager for it. It upset me when there was a few people who were like, "You're taking too long. Screw you. I'm going to do it myself." And I was like, 
bitch what? Like, go for it. Like, come at me, bro. Like, <laughs> like you think you're going to do this faster and better? Like, I don't think so. Um, and I'm competitive that way. So like I, that, 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 uh, that lit a fire in me. Vol knighted you. He's not like, there's not a line behind you that he's looking at is what I would, I would think, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I also like, um, it, look, the, I mean, my, my wiser perspective on that now is like, 20 different people could write in of all books and they would all come out very differently. And like that, going back to where we started, right? Like curation is creation is just as important. People are going to curate very differently. Um, they're going to optimize for different things. They're going to be attracted to different things. They're going to edit differently. They're going to organize differently. They're going to, um, they're going to emphasize different themes. Like you could write an of all book tomorrow that would land very differently and it might appeal to different people. Um, and that would probably be good for the world too. So like, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little less protective of it now um, and a little less crazy. Um, but yeah, it, it is, it is a real thing to like feel impatient, especially when, especially when you know you're onto something and I'm always eager. Like I'm, I'm now eager for my next book to come out and like, I'm impatient with myself to like put more hours into it and work a little faster and work a little harder and get it out. And I think there's a degree to which that's healthy. Um, as long as, and I, I, um, I tell people this all the time. It's one of my like favorite things is like when you look back in 10 years or 20 years at this day or this week or this month, the only thing that may turn out to matter about it is that you didn't quit. So like whatever is a healthy mindset for you to be in, in wherever, whatever else is going on in your life to just not quit permanently today, like, don't quit today. Don't quit tomorrow. Take it one day at a time and just keep moving. Um, that mindset for me helped me through all manner of like various psychological challenges, right? Cause you go through like, Oh my God, I need to go faster. The world is like moving too quick and I'm not ready yet. Then you go into like, Oh, the book isn't good enough yet. Then you go into, it'll never be good enough. Then I'm not good enough. Then like, there's just, there's a, you know, people think, and, and I get this question all the time. How did you decide to write the book? Like, when did you decide? So like, writing a book is not one decision. It is a million decisions to continue. And you have to be, you have to employ all manner of like tricks to get you to make a million decisions to keep writing and keep going. And just, and some days it's not even keep writing. Some days it's just not quit, not decide to quit. Um, so knowing that going in and remembering that like, this is, this is like, a stay in the game game um, is, has been really helpful for me. I interviewed a screenwriter and they were talking about how do you make it in Hollywood? And the, the advice is don't quit, don't die. And the rest of it just kind of. <laughs> out. So yeah. uh, last question, possibly uh, we've sprinkled all the breadcrumbs, but I got your email a few weeks ago. You're now the CEO of scribe. It still feels kind of a wild story. How did that happen? And then were you tempted just to be an author as opposed to also have this professional job what are your thoughts on that yeah man this is um is a wild story um i i don't know you tell me how much time we have for the whole thing but like all right so we um like i said i published my first book with scribe tucker helped the team was amazing i loved everybody i worked with there i was kind of halfway through working with them to publish my second book um easy decision loved them was having a great experience and I started to hear whispers from like author friends of mine that like, and the rumor right away was like, scribe shut down. And I was like, no fucking way. Like, no, way. I don't believe you. Um, 
And so I, I, but I kept hearing it. And so I, I called the CEO. I was like, dude, what is going on? Um, and he's like, well, we run into some financial trouble. Um, you know, the, the bank is like forcing a sale for closing on us. I don't remember the exact like technical term, but basically like the bank wants their money. Um, and so what turned out to happen is the bank foreclosed the scribe media LLC, which was the version of the company that I had worked with so far was, uh, going, started going through bankruptcy process. Um, and over the years I've read a bunch of books and have some friends who work in, in private equity and permanent equity and have holding companies. And so I was like, this, this is a company that I love that seems like it should be making money that I'm a very happy customer of that. I can't imagine how to be an author without, I, th- I think I would like to make some phone calls and see what we can do about this. So I, I, uh, you know, just not, I'm not one to take, take a, a blow like that lying down. So I called some friends and one of them was like, this is interesting. Like, we're going to, we're going to take a look at this. So they flew to Austin, started due diligence, um, signed a letter of intent and wound up buying a good amount of the assets of the company. Um, so they, they bought the brand essentially from the bank when the bank had like claimed all of the assets of the company. Um, and they, to their credit, extended offers before that was even done, extended offers to the remaining team, um, some of them, uh, to bring them on. And so kind of took this risk capital to keep taking care of authors through this like nasty bankruptcy process. Um, and it's, it's painful. And a lot of people, you know, they were, a lot of authors were owed work um, and the team did not get the, you know, treated well on the way out. And it was, it was very poor management um, kind of all around by the, uh, by the previous ownership. Um, but the foundation of this company and the team that's there is awesome and passionate about authors. And, you know, I was just glad that I'd be able to keep writing books and using scribe and uh, and these guys who bought the assets and started this thing back up, called me and we're like, we've been thinking about it and we need somebody to lead this company. And we think it should be you. You've been an author, you understand the industry, like other, you, you will be able to work with other authors and bring them along. The team really likes you. And you brought us the deal in the first place. And you've got like the, the operating background. We think you should do it. And I was like, guys, I cannot tell you how happy I am to just be sitting and writing books and just like having an empty calendar. Um, and I can't tell you how delighted my wife is to have me like as her personal caterer every day. Um, so like, I'm going to have to think hard about this, but like, don't get your hopes up. And, uh, I, we, I, we thought long and hard about it. And, um, I, I just, I couldn't bear to see it done poorly. You know, I'm so, I'm so eager to see what this next generation of publishing is going to look like. And I think that scribe hit on the model that is the most author friendly and the really respects the context that publishing operates in now, which is books are largely talked about and sold and communicated about on social media. Amazon makes it really easy for anybody to publish print on demand. makes it incredibly easy and there's no centralized sort of, um, there's not nearly as much need for upfront capital for huge print runs. There's not nearly as much need for political connections around centralized media. And like those endorsements mean so much less than they used to. I think just the whole context has changed around traditional publishing and 
this model that gives authors full creative control and full financial upside of their work is a huge, huge improvement and innovation. Um, and that's, that is kind of what we do. And I'm really proud to be able to offer people that. And there's, there's a million reasons to write a book. Um, you know, so, some people just want to have an impact and they're like, if I save one person from committing suicide, this will be worth the time and effort and money I invest in, in creating this book. Some people, you know, use it as a tool to grow their business. And they say, I'm going to give away every copy of this book that I can. And it's going to bring me millions of dollars in consulting services or software sales or whatever it is. Um, or there's people like, you know, me or David Goggins who are like, I think this book is going to sell a lot of copies. And I want like, I, I want to make that bet. I want to take the upside downside risk of my life's work. And I want to work with somebody who respects that and will still do great work to help me put the best version of it out in the world. Um, so I'm a few months into that job now and the team is, is tenured and working hard and um, we're bringing in great new authors and I'm having a ton of fun, like meeting everybody who wants to write a book in, in and outside my network and like brainstorming and positioning and just helping people like navigate the, uh, you know, the confusing world of publishing for the first time. Um, but I'm uh, like, I'm really excited to see where we can get over, over five or 10 years. Um, and I feel like I get to kind of pay forward the favor that Tucker did me when I was just like a lost dude in, with a Google doc, like tweeting about having finished a manuscript, right? Like he really helped me published this book that changed my life. Um, and now I get to do the same for others. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. That was amazing. Um, I really appreciate you just taking, taking an hour with me and your really thoughtful answers. I really appreciate it. Thank you for, for giving the space out of this conversation, man. I, I love when uh, writers get to talk writing and, and talk shop and share secrets. Um, I'm excited to go. Uh, I, I have a really like deep curiosity for screenwriting in the movie business. I don't understand it at all, but I'm fascinated by it. Like I'm, I'm going to go dive into a lot of these old episodes. And so it holds such romance for me. I'm really excited to, to learn more. Cool. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.